Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information For years now, we've watched relations between London and Brussels plunge into a deep freeze, with trust fraying and progress stalled. But things were about to change. Prime Minister Thierry Schiff, it is an honour and a pleasure to be here in Windsor with you. Dear Rishi, if the press were looking for a sign that relations were improving, here it was. That was certainly a moment. The extraordinary warmth between Ursula von der Leyen and Rishi Sunak. It was palpable that these were two leaders who appeared to get on, appeared to like one another. And I think that was very deliberate. They wanted to suggest that they were turning a page on the divisions of the past. So are Brexit divisions a thing of the past? What will the Windsor framework actually mean for Northern Ireland? And is this a new dawn for the UK's relations with its nearest neighbours? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... 
what Rishi Sunak's Brexit deal actually means. Ollie, we're going to talk about this new deal that's been agreed Mm -hmm. um, in a moment. But before we do, just explain where we are now, why this deal was needed. So, you know, we had Brexit and it felt almost like after Brexit, people suddenly remembered there might be a problem when it came to Northern Ireland. I actually think you have to go back further than that and to the 1990s and the very tortuous process that led to peace in Northern Ireland. Now, I spent a lot of time when I was a kid in Northern Ireland and when I was going over there when I was a child, if you were crossing from Northern Ireland into the Republic, you had a series of checkpoints that you had to go through, Mm. heavily armed checkpoints. You were stopped. Sometimes the car was searched. You had to show your driving license. You had to show your passport. Then you went for another check where the Irish customs authorities would come and say, have you got any goods to declare? And you weren't allowed to take groceries from the north into the south and potentially you could be fined for doing that then what happened was because britain and ireland were both members of the european union when the single market came into effect and the customs union came into effect there was no need for those types of checks so really in some ways britain's and ireland's membership of the european union allowed both sides to take down the barriers because there were no need to have those barriers any longer and that was one of the things that absolutely underpinned the peace process. Yeah. So back in the 90s, I mean, that became like a key part of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it wasn't a key part of the Good Friday Agreement. It was just something that allowed the Good Friday Agreement to happen. It was one of those things which changed the political situation because all our rules were aligned. So there were no real need for kind of physical barriers or checks or anything like that because there was seamless travel through the rest of Europe. And when Brexit happened, we suddenly realised that that might now be under threat. Yeah. And it was really only after the vote and the sort of nitty gritty of thinking, Mm. okay, how do we make this work, that it became really, really problematic because a lot of people who supported Brexit felt that the benefits of Brexit could only come if Britain left both the European Union's customs union and the single market because otherwise and rightly yeah we would have left the european union but we would still be having to follow an awful lot of rules that were not made in westminster but were made in brussels and a large part of that was about this irish problem what does this mean for britain and northern ireland and a potential for a border in the island of ireland where there hadn't been one before so There was a real sense that you couldn't reintroduce a border between Northern and Southern Ireland. That would jeopardise peace. So Boris Johnson ends up signing up to this Northern Ireland Protocol. Just explain exactly how that works. So the Northern Ireland Protocol was the bit of Boris Johnson's deal back in 2019, which he claimed it was an oven-ready deal, famously. This is... The other is already fine. This is the get Brexit done. This is, this, is a, this is the perfect metaphor. We have a deal. It's ready to go. You saw how easy it is. We put it in, slam it in the oven, take it out. There it is. Get Brexit done. Take the country forward.
it really wasn't. The protocol that he signed had all sorts of problems in it, as those people that were involved in negotiating it now admit. But what they say and their defence is, look, we had to sign this deal, otherwise we couldn't end the Brexit debate. Britain, or the United Kingdom as a whole, could not leave the European Union. So we did this deal, we made some compromises, but we've been stuck with that for a good three or four years since then, and it has come back to haunt successive Tory leaders. And what were the problems with the protocol? The protocol meant that while Britain, England, Wales and Scotland left the EU's single market and customs union, Northern Ireland remained in the single market and customs union. So that meant that Northern Ireland had to follow EU rules while the rest of the UK didn't. And if that's the case, you have to have a border somewhere. Mm. So that border was put into the Irish Sea. Now, like all these things, even those people who are negotiating the deal don't necessarily fully understand the implications of it. Now, everyone knows about sausages now, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but <laughs> I remember the first story that we wrote highlighted the issue of sausages, and it took me two days to try and figure it out. <laughs> and when the EU was drawing up you know, single market rules in the first place, they saw no need to import what are known as chilled, uncooked meats. No one was sending chilled, uncooked processed meats into the EU, so there wasn't a code for it. So technically, it was banned. You couldn't send it in. Now, it was never an issue until Brexit, but there on paper, unless it had been frozen, you couldn't send those products in. So something which was, up until that point, really for the geeks, <laughs> suddenly gained an extraordinary political significance. So it suddenly meant if you had sausages in the rest of the United Kingdom, you couldn't send them to Northern Ireland yeah, anymore. Yeah, that symbolism of you can't send a British banger to Northern <laughs> Ireland takes on huge, huge political significance, far outweighing perhaps the practical significance of it. And that that has been the story of the last few years and why it is so difficult to solve, because sometimes a technical solution isn't good enough. There needs to be a symbolic solution as well. So it was becoming harder to send goods from the rest of the United Kingdom into Northern Ireland. So that is a problem, I suppose, for supermarkets, for people who regularly supply Yeah, and, and also there, are, there were real-world problems. Under the protocol as it is written, if I was to send a birthday present to someone in Belfast of a book, hmm. I would need to fill in a customs declaration to send that book. Oh. to Belfast. Now, that's never actually come in, but if you look at the letter of the protocol, it, it is due, due to come to. in. Another thing which was due to come in and hasn't come in is if you wanted to take your dog uh, on a ferry to Northern Ireland, it would need an animal health certificate, which costs about £130 and would have to be every time you did it. Equally, garden centres in Northern Ireland, mm. any plant which had soil in it technically couldn't be sent from Britain to Northern Ireland. So there, there were very, very real-world examples of problems with the protocol. And yeah, that, that in a way is what the last three years have been about, trying to sort some of these problems out. And I suppose you know, if you're a member of the DUP in Northern Ireland and you're seeing these, these real-world effects, you're seeing that supermarkets are struggling to send the same produce from Britain to Northern Ireland, you're starting to see that there are laws that apply to the rest of Europe that apply to you but don't apply to mainland Britain. I can imagine you do start to feel like you're no longer the same country. Yeah, and this was, has been a particular fear of the DUP they think that 
the protocol will slowly, over time, make Northern Ireland more likely to join with the Republic of Ireland. And you know that is a fundamental issue of identity. They see themselves as part of the United Kingdom. And the idea that at some point, Northern Ireland could no longer be part of the United Kingdom is of extraordinarily political and cultural importance. So the DUP, the, the Democratic Unionist Party, the biggest unionist party in Northern Ireland, are getting very worried about this sort of divergence away from the rest of the UK. And it leads to a whole new level of problems with this deal because they actually pull out of Parliament. The unionists won't restore devolution unless the Brexit protocol is scrapped. But the new Prime Minister doesn't want a trade war with the European Union. And that's left Northern Ireland in political stalemate at the worst possible moment. But by pulling out of power sharing, Parliament in Northern Ireland, Stormont, that, that was dissolved, you have ended up as a result for months now with effectively a, a democratic deficit in Northern Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. And you've had control from Westminster and civil servants in Northern Ireland, but there are certain things that they can't do. And you've seen examples of that in terms of an emotive law and changing the law around organ donation. That can't happen because there isn't an assembly to pass that law. Everyone says that the law should be passed, but nothing's happening. The whole series of real world problems that have been caused by the fact that Stormont isn't sitting. And yeah, the difficulty is, for the government's point of view, either they have to accept that Stormont's never going to work and take the powers back so they can do something about it or just hold out and it's not a satisfactory situation. No. So clearly there were huge problems with, with the oven-ready deal with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Just talk us through how Boris Johnson and after him Liz Truss dealt with that. What was their sort of get-out clause? So I think both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss would privately recognise that it wasn't good enough, it had to change. But the question is, how do you get it to change? Yeah. And Boris Johnson's strategy was to effectively threaten the European Union, to say, look, unless you come to the table and talk to us seriously about how we can change this, we have no choice. We're going to have to act unilaterally. And he drew up a bill called the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, which in its very simplest terms would allow the UK government to disregard the elements of the protocol that it felt weren't working. And it had very significant leeway to do that. Now, there are all sorts of arguments over whether that was legal in British and international law, but the government claimed that it was legal. Now, the idea was always that this should be used as a last resort. Indeed, if it wasn't used as a last resort, it wouldn't have been legal under international law. But this process has been trundling on. The bill has been going through Parliament. It went through the Commons, and then it entered into the Lords. Meanwhile, there was a parallel track of negotiations that were going on with the European Commission about a joint agreement to reform the protocol. Now, arguably... Both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss felt that the European Commission could ever really give them enough to satisfy the DUP. Therefore, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill was the best way forward. Sunak, I think, took a different view that he wanted a negotiated solution. He wanted better relations with the EU overall and was prepared to make some concessions on the UK side. So he put a lot of emphasis on 
getting a negotiated deal. And indeed, he suspended the progress of the protocol bill through Parliament. He basically halted it in the House of Lords, which I think was the critical thing that really got the EU to engage. By suspending that, he sent a signal to the EU, look, I'm serious about getting a negotiated settlement. I'm not holding a gun to your head anymore. Let's try and work something out together. And we've got to try and come to a compromise on this. So the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill, that was basically a bit of legislation which would allow the government, the United Kingdom government, to turn its back on an agreement it had signed, to pull the plug on something it had already agreed to. That was very bad, not just for EU relations, but for our reputation around the world, wasn't it? Why do you think Rishi Sunak felt he really needed to get this sorted out? One of the more important ones was Ukraine, that the conflict in Ukraine and the need for a joint Western response to Russia meant that both Britain and the EU needed to work together. And while there was this sort of on-running saw and dispute over Brexit, that was causing problems and spillover into that relationship. There was also a lot of pressure on both sides, it should be said, from the Americans to say, we want this fixed. We want both of you to sit down and make compromises. This isn't good enough. Having President Biden, who you know, notably has Irish roots in the White House, was important in that. On the protocols, I feel very strongly about those. I would not at all like to see a change in the uh, Irish courts, the end result having a closed border again. Alongside that, there were issues around the future relationship between Britain and the European Union in the light of Brexit that were also coming down the tracks. The obvious one is one of the elements of the Brexit deal that was due to come into effect was that UK and the EU would contribute and take part in joint science and technology programmes known as Horizon. Now, that hasn't happened since Brexit because of the row mm. over Northern Ireland, and both sides see that as a beneficial and a win. So there were a whole series of reasons why it was in the UK's interests to try and get a negotiated deal rather than having a sort of a standoff with the EU. There's another element to this, which is temperamentally, Sunak is a technocrat. He comes at a problem and thinks, well, there must be a solution to this, whereas Johnson paints in primary colours and says, well, give us what we want. So I think there was a, a change of politics and a change of approach. And that's how you get the dear Rishi moment. That's how you get the dear Rishi moment. Coming up, what will the deal mean for the people of Northern Ireland? And what is the Stormont break? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm Lara Spirit. I'm the Red Box reporter at The Times. I work on putting together our morning email that lands in subscribers' inboxes at 8.30 that has all the most important political stories of the day. I find it amazing still that every morning I walk into the Palace of Westminster and it's my office. I can only do this work thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about 
work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, Ollie, Rishi Sunak sends out this signal by halting the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. He's clearly willing to negotiate in a very different way to the last two prime ministers. And you end up with what we now know this deal to be. Just talk us through how the deal changes things. So, you know, we talked about a few areas before that we have problems with in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol at the moment. So, for example, the flow of trade. You know, if you're trying to get your sausages <laughs> from yeah. Britain to Northern Ireland, how does that change yeah. now so under some this of, new deal? So some of the more egregious elements of the protocol have largely been scrapped. So the ban on chilled meat, sausages, that's just gone. Equally, if you're sending the present to the person in Belfast, you don't have to fill in a customs declaration. That's gone. You can take your pet to Belfast, there is still some paperwork, but it's not the sort of charge that you had before. So that is sorted. You will be able to send your rose from your garden centre in Berkshire to your garden centre in Belfast. But when you actually go through the detail, it is more complicated than perhaps it was ah. sold by the Prime Minister. And I don't begrudge him that you know, you're going to put the best possible gloss on the deal. But he talks about green lanes, which basically the idea that if you're sending goods simply into Northern Ireland, you don't have any of the checks that you would have if you were going to send those goods onward into the Republic of Ireland. So this is if you're a supermarket here and you're sending goods to be sold in Northern Ireland, you can promise (laughs) on your word they're not going to travel to the rest of Ireland. You would be able to travel through a green lane. You would be able to travel through a green lane. Does that have no customs barriers, no form filling? It does. uh, To be fair, it does have barriers. They are less than they were before, but they still exist. So Previously, there were around 80 separate pieces of information that you needed to fill in if you were going to send a product from Britain to Northern Ireland. That has been reduced to 20 pieces of information. So it is better, but it's not completely frictionless. They think that they've reduced the checks from 20% of goods to less than 5%. So again, it's much better, but it's not completely frictionless. Right. Because we sort of assumed green lane sounded like you just drive through and everything is easy. As it's meant to. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And opposite the green lane, you've got the red lane. Just explain that. So the red lane is is quite simple to explain, really. It's just the same as if you were sending goods between Dover and Calais. You go through exactly the same formalities that you would as if you were sending goods straight into the EU. All the form filling, all the customs checks. Except those checks would happen in Belfast rather than at a physical border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And in terms of, you know, all eyes really now are on the Democratic Unionist Party to see how they respond. Does this 
go some way towards just alleviating that. You know, we, we could see physically almost the divergence between Northern Ireland and Britain. We could see the problems that were arising. Will this allow them to feel like they are still much more a part of the UK? Does that change? That is the million-dollar question. <laughs> and there are different people in the DUP who think different things. In terms of the deal, though, are there things there which will allow so them to when, feel more So you know, when Rishi Sunak tasked negotiators with this, he said, look, the DUP have set seven tests for a deal that would be acceptable. I need to be able to say that this deal has met those seven tests. Now, someone in the DUP who was involved in setting them said that they were set deliberately, vaguely, to be open to interpretation. Ah. <laughs> and they are. You can go both ways on it. You could argue that this deal absolutely meets the seven tests, or you could argue, no. Ultimately, it's a political decision for the DUP, and it's an internal political decision. Can Jeffrey Donaldson bring his party with him if he signs up to it? I mean, if you listen to him, he sounds like he wants to do a deal. Sir Jeffrey Donaldson, leader of the DUP, good morning to you. Good morning. Are you going to back this deal or not? Well, as I said yesterday in the House of Commons, we uh, recognise that uh, progress has been made across uh, a number of areas um, about which we had concern. We continue to have some concerns. We will examine the legal text. We'll look at all of this in the round. He doesn't sound like someone who doesn't, but there are other members, people like Ian Paisley Jr., Sammy Wilson, senior people within the party who will sound far more negative. Mm. I think it falls some way short in satisfying those tests. That's my gut instinct. And you don't defend the union by acting in a way which takes you out of the United Kingdom because you implement foreign law, which drives you further and further away from the country. One of the interesting questions in the days and the weeks ahead is how will the DUP make its decision and can the party come through the other side with a unified position that they are all happy with? Does this new deal, does it go some way towards making sure that people in Northern Ireland have similar laws to the rest of the United Kingdom? Does anything change in that It respect? changes a bit. What the government has said is that only 3% of European laws will apply in Northern Ireland. Everything else will be UK laws and that right. only laws which directly affect the integrity of the single market and trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland will be covered by that. And they also point out that because of this deal, Northern Ireland is able to sell into the single market in a frictionless way and is able to sell into the rest of the UK in a frictionless way and that this is economically a massive benefit. The question is, what is that 3%? How yeah. important are they? What Sunak has negotiated is what he refers to aficionados the stormont lock or the stormont break or i can't actually even have gone for now <laughs> tell us about the stormont break because um, you know we've ever since it was announced we've had even arch brexiteers like david davis coming out and hailing it as the best yeah uh, best policy innovation since sliced bread i'm unaware of any a mechanism in any international agreement like the Stormont Break. Mm. It seems to me a brilliant piece of negotiating insight and imagination. So what exactly is it? Why are people making such a big deal out of it? And how does it actually work? So the Stormont Break is designed to deal with the conundrum of what happens in the future because the EU isn't standing still and neither is the UK. So the mm. EU is changing the rules around the single market, what people can do and what can't they do. Under current arrangements, any new law that the EU 
brings in that affects the single market will automatically apply to Northern Ireland. But Northern Ireland, because the UK is not part of the European Union, Northern Ireland politicians have no say on the laws that will be imposed upon them. They're not a rule maker, they're a rule taker. This is the conundrum which both sides have been sort of grappling with. How do you deal with this democratic deficit? And the Stormont Lock is designed to do that. If 30 members of the Legislative Assembly from two different parties objected to a new EU law that was about to come in, they could register something called a petition of concern. It needs two separate parties. Two separate parties. Do so, they have to be unionists and Republicans? No, I mean, no, Sorry, so that's you... a critical point. They don't. It would allow one community, effectively, to be able to, at least at the outset, block a new law from coming into effect. But the EU have not, and they were never going to, allow the DUP or the unionist community in Northern Ireland to effectively block whatever they wanted to. So this Stormont break is not a complete break. They can object to it. They can stop it in the first instance. But the next critical part is they have to get the UK government to agree. That's one of the safeguards from the European Union's point of view. So the UK government can override Northern Ireland politicians and say, actually, you know what? We're perfectly happy with this. Ah, it's going so to go there is ahead. Still a bit of a democratic deficit. Uh huh. And equally, if the government says, no, it shouldn't go ahead, and the EU is unhappy with that, then in a limited way, they can impose sanctions. Um, what does that mean? The absolute honest answer is we're not sure. This is still a new deal, and there's a lot of detail to go through. It's not the completely cut and dry solution that. Yeah, you know, some people have said, but yeah, nevertheless, I mean, I think overall it's interesting and something that no one was really expecting. Just talk us through the last few bits of the of, of the deal. You know, one of the big controversies before this deal was whether or not the ECJ should still have a role in Northern Ireland. Just talk us through sort of what that role is at the moment and whether any of that has changed. So, what the European Court of Justice is about is to be the final court that interprets the legislation that underpins the single market. So if Northern Ireland is part of the single market and has to abide by its rules, what is the court that's going to decide that? And the European Union has always been categorical that that is the one area that it can't give ground on, and they haven't given way on that. Mm. Now, that could be, if the DUP want it to be, could still be a problem. The question is, are they prepared to accept that? And for the DUP, you know, one of their main complaints about this was that sense of having a border in the Irish Sea, a border between mainland Britain and Northern Ireland. Rishi Sunak, you know, in all of his pronouncements around this, has been saying there won't be a sense of a border in the Irish Sea. Customs paperwork. This means we have removed any sense of a border in the Irish Sea. Do you think that's true? That's probably true if you're just travelling from... Britain to Northern Ireland. And frankly, if you're travelling from Britain to Northern Ireland now, there's no sense of a border. I think if you're involved in a business where you're sending stuff to Bristol and to Northern Ireland, you will have a bit of a sense of a border. The real question is how much bureaucracy is entailed. Talk us through the reaction, because we've seen so many prime ministers now from Theresa May stand up and talk about a deal, and we've seen them often disappear, yeah. not be able to land the deal because of what their backbenchers say for a start. Talk us through the sort of reaction we've seen so far. I mean, I think Downing Street will be, frankly, utterly delighted 
and a lot of work went into priming reaction from people. They lined up people like Andrea Ledson, David Davis. They briefed them on the deal. They got their support and they got their agreement to give it an element of momentum. Where they've also benefited is that even those skeptics within the Conservative Party, members of the European Research Group, they were surprised that they got more than they were expecting. Mm. So their reaction was one of, well, we need to see the small print. So they didn't immediately come out and say, no, this isn't going to work. So they've given Downing Street political space. Even if there is a rebellion, it's probably going to be quite small, possibly you know, no more than 20 Conservative MPs, which I think Downing Street could live with. And the DUP haven't said no. And that sense that he has achieved something that his predecessors all failed to do, and that this has got it sorted, even actually if it's a bit more complicated than that, yeah. is a narrative that will be quite hard for his critics now to dispel. So it'll be the next few days and weeks will be really, really interesting. But my sense is that Downing Street think actually, even if the DUP ultimately decide that they're not happy with it and won't go into power sharing, that they can still push this through. Tell us about that, though, because if one of the reasons for doing this deal, for needing a deal, was that power sharing had collapsed, people in Northern Ireland didn't have yeah. a body making decision, you know, that was able to pass through laws that affected them. If he doesn't get the DUP on side, if power sharing doesn't resume, will this still be a failure? I mean, the question is, how long has power sharing not happened for? I mean, that's the real question. You know, if the DUP don't go back in next month or the month after, does that mean they won't go back in in, in seven months' time? Is there another deal that you can do that gets them back into power sharing? Is there money on the table, be it from the Americans and the EU or someone else that gets them back into power sharing. There are you know, more than one reason why the DUP is not in power sharing. Mm. It's partly to do with the fact that Sinn Féin are now the largest party so that they have the first minister's job and not the DUP. Personally, I think it is unlikely that the DUP would come out and say, we will never go back into power sharing. This deal is an utter failure. Yeah. And someone in government said to me, we don't need the DUP to say yes, we just need them not to say no. That's interesting. Interesting distinction. They yeah. can carry on, get the, get the deal through. Yeah. And I think it is important, you know, we've talked a lot about the DUP in this discussion. It is important to reflect that that doesn't reflect the whole of Northern Ireland. You know, Sinn Féin won the last elections. There are a lot of people who quite like the protocol yep. and the closeness to Europe. And in a way, if this deal goes through, it might end up making Northern Ireland the best of both worlds. It might. Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, which is enormous, fifth biggest in the world, but also the European Union single market. Nobody else has that. And that is the prize. I can tell you, when I go around the world and talk to businesses, they, that, you know, they know that. They're like, well, that's interesting. If you guys get this sorted, then we want to invest in Northern Ireland. One of the sort of ironies of all this is that you can see in the longer term that it's actually the Republic of Ireland that has the biggest problem with this deal because it gives Northern Ireland perhaps an unfair economic advantage over the South. So if you're a business deciding where you're going to set up in Ireland, mm. do you set up in the south where you've got effectively barriers to trade with Britain 
what you set up in the north where you can trade with both the EU and with Britain. I can see a situation in 10 or 15 years' time where people in the south say, not sure we like this very much. So it's kind of, that's quite interesting as well, the dynamic. And Oliver, you don't need to be told this, but it has now been six years, eight months and seven days since the Brexit (laughs) referendum. (laughs) You've had to write endlessly about it ever since. Is this now Brexit done? No. Ah. No. I mean, I think someone said to me, I think years ago now, Brexit will never be done. Because the truth is, the European Union are our neighbours, our closest trading partners, and we're never going to divorce ourselves from them entirely. We can't, we won't. Different governments will move closer to the EU. Other governments, yeah, other governments, British governments, this will, will want to move further away. That will lead to rows. I fully expect that down the line, there will be people who want to talk about rejoining the European Union. I think that's pretty likely at the moment we have a consensus. I don't think that will probably last. So Brexit and its consequences are going to be with us, certainly long, long into the foreseeable future. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times policy editor, Oliver Wright. If you're a subscriber, you'll find a great bit of analysis on The Times website today from Ollie, looking at the details of the deal that is still being chewed over. The producers today were James Shield, Sam Chantarasak, and Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.